my name is Kyle, if you don't know who I am, and I want to welcome all of you to Uplift tonight. Uh, and you know what? We are recording this message. It's going to be on our podcast. So if you're listening to our podcast, we want to welcome you as well. We are in a series at Uplift this fall semester called Questioning Jesus, where we are examining some of the questions that were asked of Jesus. And more specifically, even some of the questions that he answered. The Gospels, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Gospels actually record something like 113 questions that Jesus was asked and answered. And my guess is that if we, to, if we were to examine the sum of your life, you've probably asked Jesus just as many questions, maybe without any expectation that any of those would even be answered. Last week in Uplift, we talked about the very first question that anyone ever asked Jesus. And if you missed that, you can check that on our podcast. This week's question is not necessarily the second question anyone ever asked Jesus, but it is a question that speaks to the core of how we view Jesus. It also has a rather large presupposition to it. So in order to adequately understand this question, tonight's question, and how Jesus answered it, we first have to believe this one single presupposition, and it's this, that Jesus is real, that Jesus is real, that he actually lived, that he was a human being, because skeptics largely claim that Jesus perhaps was not a real figure, or if he was, the narratives of his life and the Gospels are largely exaggerated. And you know what? You might believe that. Or if you don't believe it, you may have flirted with believing that. So let me point you in the right direction before we ask this next question of Jesus. It's important to note here that historians by and large, believe that Jesus was a real human being. The life of Jesus in the New Testament is actually corroborated by a Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus, who wrote a book called Antiquities. And that book was written about 50 years or so after the ascension of Jesus. That book, Josephus's book Antiquities, actually mentions Jesus and his ability to work miracles. And Josephus' book is actually a critical part of the evidence of Jesus' realness because it is not a New Testament book. In other words, Josephus had no agenda to show that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. He just wrote about the facts. And Josephus is actually just one of several extra-biblical sources that attest not only to Jesus, but also to the people in the first century and the second century that believed that Jesus was real and actually worshiped him as God. So it's important to note that Jesus was human and that he was a human and that he is a human and that he's real. This is the single presupposition for tonight's question, the next question in our series. And here's the question. Who gave you your authority? Who gave you your authority? What an 
absolutely layered question. It's, it doesn't really deny Jesus's existence. It doesn't deny his supernatural power. Instead, it gets right to the core of both of those things with a whole handful of sub-questions that are just as big. You've asked all of these. Who gave Jesus the right to forgive sin? Or maybe even more pointed, who gave Jesus the, the right to decide what is a sin? Who gave Jesus the power to drive out demons? Who gave Jesus the power to decide who gets healed and who doesn't? Or who gave Jesus the right to only heal a select few? And who gives Jesus the right to make any claims in our lives? This question, who gave you your authority? This is a demanding question of reconciliation. In other words, we have the data that Jesus was an amazing moral teacher and he was a great miracle worker, but I'm not really sure if he's more than that. And if he is, if he is, I'm going to need him to prove it to me. We want this data to be reconciled. And we ask this question about Jesus's authority. We ask this question, even if we don't know it, in the toughest of moments, when those we love are sick, when catastrophe strikes us, when the world seems to upend itself, this is the question we ask, really. Those are the moments we want to know if Jesus is real and if he is who he says he is. John Duncan, the great Scottish preacher of the 19th century, actually reformed this question into an amazing concise statement. He wrote this in the 1800s. Let me read you his quote. Christ either, number one, deceived humanity by conscious fraud, or number two, he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or number three, he was divine. There is no getting out of, and this is the cool word that that he put in his quote, there's no getting out of this trilemma. Not a dilemma, but a trilemma. It is inexorable. C.S. Lewis actually made a very similar statement and a very similar argument from his book, Mere Christianity. This is what he wrote in 1952. You've probably heard this quote. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Lewis concludes his quote by saying this, he has not left that open to us. So again, the question tonight is, who gave you your authority, Jesus? Are you for real? Are you a liar? Are you a lunatic? Or are you the Lord? Let's go to the text tonight. I hope you have your Bibles. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. Mark 
chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. This is the text where this question is found. Read together with me, starting in verse 27 of Mark chapter 11. And they came again to Jerusalem, they meaning Jesus and his entourage. And as he was walking, as Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, and here's the question, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Verse 29, Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Verse 31, and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven... He'll say, why then, did you not, why then did you not believe him, him being God? Verse 32, but shall we say from, from man? They were afraid, you see, of the people, for they all held that John was a prophet. Verse 33, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So here's the setting. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem in the Gospel of Mark the day before this text. And when he got to Jerusalem in the Gospel of Mark, he cleared the temple. You remember that story. He cleared the temple courts of its overpriced animals who were purchased, that were purchased for sacrifices. Let's not underestimate this. This was no small moment in the story of Jerusalem. In fact, a few years after this very event, a few years later at Passover, over 200,000 lambs were purchased and sacrificed at the temple. For Jesus to clear this temple, this was a major moment in the life of Jesus and in the life of the city of Jerusalem. And what it did was it ground to a halt two separate things. First of all, obviously, the sacrificing of all these animals. In other words, it stopped the worship of the Jewish people. And number two, it stopped the commerce of this worship, which stopped the financial gain of, and you probably guessed this, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the politicians in Jerusalem who oversaw this temple-turned-market. In other words, it put all of Jerusalem on notice that this renegade Galilean would not be overlooked. But there is actually so much more context to this question. Steadily, Throughout the Gospel of Mark, the scribes emerge as Jesus' primary opposition. They had both seen and heard Jesus in action. They were the primary witnesses driving the question of Jesus' legitimacy. So the scribes, along with the elders and the chief priests, they collude to ask Jesus this question. They were the three groups of people comprised of what we know of as the Sanhedrin. You've heard this word before. The Sanhedrin was the chief political group that buffered the relationship between Rome and Judea. The Sanhedrin had the ability 
to raise taxes. They were the final court of law in all of Judea. In other words, Jesus had just been bumped to the top of their list of their most pressing concerns. He threatened their power. All of this, all of this speaks into the context of our own asking this question. Because we don't really mind Jesus' teaching or his miracles. We see those as children's stories. Maybe they're all really nice. Love your neighbor. He's turning water into wine. We don't mind those things until Jesus becomes so disruptive that he makes us stop and question who he really is. If he really has the authority to make any claim on our life. The most startling aspect of this question, too, is actually the answer. It's how Jesus answered it. He offered this group a counter question, making it clear that everything we need to know about Jesus' authority and legitimacy can actually be summed up in just one event. And it's John's baptism of Jesus. So before we chalk this counter question up to a diversionary tactic, let's slow this narrative down just a bit and talk about the very moment that Jesus addressed. It was the baptism, it was his baptism at the hands of John that something remarkable happened. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Mark chapter 1. I want to read this narrative of the very thing that Jesus referenced. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Let's read it together. Verse 9, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, the way Mark, now listen carefully, the way that Mark tells this story. Now, I want you to forget everything you know about this story and even about Jesus from all the other gospels. Just for a split second, I want you to forget everything else that you know and let's just see how Mark tells this story. So the way that Mark tells this story is that Jesus is just one of the crowd. He's from a town so unremarkable and obscure that there, did you know this? There is no mention of Nazareth outside of the New Testament in any ancient document. Now, there's a city called Nazareth. It's still there. There are archaeological finds there, but the word Nazareth, it's not written anywhere. That's how obscure this place is. In other words, the way that Mark tells this story is that Jesus is no credentialed or validated hero in the telling of this gospel when we see him for the very first time at the Jordan River. He's just a guy from the crowd. But here's the remarkable thing. Three 
unbelievable things actually happened at Jesus' baptism. And listen carefully, it is these three things to which Jesus referred in his counter question. We're going to go through them. You already know them. Number one, the sky was torn open. Never mind that there are Old Testament prophecies that allude to this event. Mark's in the driver's seat here telling this story, and he's choosing language and words to give us some greater insight into what really happened. Language and words more pointed than what any other gospel writers used in describing this very same event. Mark's description of this moment is more than just the clouds parting after a nice thunderstorm. The specific word that Mark used here has a more violent action to it. The sky was ripped, torn open, and this is key, and it was something seen. That's the first thing. The second thing that happened here is that the Spirit descended into Jesus. The language, again, Mark's in the driver's seat. The language used here is a little more explicit than even what our English translations indicate. Mark actually wrote that the Spirit descended into Jesus, not onto Jesus. And it descended into Jesus. Listen to how he describes it. Like a dove. It wasn't a dove, but it was something like that. And this is Mark's best way to describe this event. It's a little coy, but not misunderstood. I don't know really how to call it or say it, but this is what I think I saw, right? And this is critical. This too, whatever this was, whatever it looked like, it too was seen. And here's the third thing. God spoke to Jesus. And in the words that God spoke to Jesus, it validated an eternal relationship with Jesus that had a specific purpose. And here's what's critical. That voice was heard. In other words, these miraculous things had empirical objectivity. Explanations surely abounded about what exactly happened on that day, but the data cannot be denied. Something extraordinary happened that was both seen and heard. In fact, the Gospel of John records for us the eyewitness testimony of John the Baptist from John chapter 1, verse 32. It's a simple verse, but it matters. Listen to what the Gospel of John says. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Again, explanations surely abounded, but the data of something extraordinary happening that day could not be denied. And it was this moment to which Jesus alluded when he was questioned by the Sanhedrin about the source of his authority. Because it was at that very moment that the world would come to know who Jesus was and what he was here for. Here's how the Sanhedrin saw this answer, though. 
It's a counter question. So this is what they think about it. They, they deliberated for a minute, and here's kind of what they came up with, right? Mark spells this out. If the Sanhedrin, the scribes and the chief priests and the elders, right, if they admitted that Jesus' baptism was just a human event, then they would have to contend with the three extraordinary, supernatural, hard-to-explain apocalyptic events that happened. And they would have to admit that not everything can be explained by natural laws or using our vernacular, that everything can be explained by science. But if they admitted it was of divine origin, then they would be cornered, right? Their disbelief would become immediately apparent, and they would have to concede their own precious and precarious authority. So, you know what they did? They just feigned ignorance. But their response of feigning ignorance, it was just a ruse. Seven times, seven times in the Gospel of Mark, people, and I'm going to do some air quotes here, people discussed things among themselves. That happened seven times. That exact phrase, by the way, that exact phrase, seven times in the Gospel of Mark, people discussed things among themselves about Jesus's claims. And each of those seven times, there was a specific purpose for discussing these things. It was to wiggle out of anything that Jesus had just said seven times. This was one of those seven times. That's what this group did. They discussed things among themselves. In other words, it wasn't that they didn't know. It was that they did not want to know. So let's make some observations about Jesus's answer for us and why the question matters and why his answer matters. First of all, let's just kind of put it on the table. Jesus's answer highlighted the divine purpose of miraculous supernatural events. He referred to it in his counter question. These events, they are the great attestation that natural law and science do not always dominate the discussion. They also give us a peek behind the curtain of creation into the house of God where imagination has no bounds. Paul said as much that God can do immeasurably more than what we can ask or imagine. We've got to hold this as truthful. So that's the first observation. Here's the second. It's okay to question Jesus's authority. It's okay. Let me say that again. It's okay to wonder about Jesus's legitimacy. These are life and death issues. And you have a right to wonder and explore whether Jesus was a truth teller or a soothsayer. These men, Jesus's primary opposition, in fact, were the very people that Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus referred to in a prophetic way, saying that the scribes and the chief priests and the elders would kill him. These people, 
that would kill Jesus questioned God himself and walked away alive. Jesus did not explode with anger. He didn't gaslight them. In fact, this is amazing. He actually treated them with dignity. He treated them as equals. Answering a question with a question was a common tactic among teachers. It's amazing. You have the right to question Jesus. But third, this is the last observation. I want you to be forewarned that Jesus will not let you mire in ambiguity. Even a non-decision about Jesus is still a decision about Jesus. He's God himself. And in the Gospels, he's God's primary vehicle of revelation. Paul says in Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God. And the writer of Hebrews says that he is the final word of God to all of creation. He won't let you stay there. I want to leave us tonight again with the words of C.S. Lewis again. This is from Mere Christianity. I read this a minute ago, but I want to leave us with this quote tonight. Listen to this again. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Jesus received his authority from God himself as the Savior of the world. Let's believe that together tonight. Let's pray together as we close. Father, you gave Jesus to the world. You gave him to us. He's your final word to us. He's your final word to creation. We ask for the energy and the faith to believe in him, to worship him, and to call on his name for salvation. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for mercy in our questions, and for assurance in your answers. And we pray this in the authoritative name of Jesus. And amen.